0: Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Vincent Brown, the Charles Warren Professor of American History and Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. Dr. Brown is on to discuss his much anticipated new book, Tacky's Revolt An Atlantic Slave War. Welcome to the show, Doctor. How are you doing today?
1: I'm well, Adam. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And uh, thank you to all your listeners for, for tuning in and downloading this podcast. I just want to begin by saying um, we are recording this in the midst of the COVID-19 plague of 2020. Uh, and I want to wish everyone um, good health. Uh, stay ha- safe and healthy out there. Um, it's a difficult time and we will all get through this, but, but it's new.
0: Most definitely. And uh, as you said, this is, this is uh, for, for us in this moment, it's very much unprecedented. And so uh, hopefully this podcast episode talking about your book can be you know a way that folks can you know, think about something different over the course of uh, the interview times today.
1: Yeah, we can think about slavery and war as a welcome distraction from thinking about the plague.
0: <laughs> yeah, hey, it's a little l- l- something different, right? A little something different. <laughs> um, and so uh, before we get into Attackers' Revolt and Atlantic Slave War, uh, you know, the streets have been talking about your book, as we, we talked about offline, and, uh, you know, the good stuff, of course. And so before we get into the actual book, how about we talk about the island of Jamaica and also how, you know, What began really your fascination with the
1: island? Oh, that's a good question, Adam. And I think it goes back to the fact that where I grew up, when I grew up in the 1970s in suburban San Diego, there just wasn't much African-American history and certainly nothing about the history of slavery being taught in the public schools. Um, So, you know, I had learned what I could learn from my parents and from word of mouth, um, their friends the oral histories that, you know, people's parents passed down from their parents, from their parents. But really in high school, when I was kind of hungry for news of the wider world, I started listening to reggae music. And it was really artists like Bob Marley and Peter Tosh, Burning Spear, uh, Steel Pulse, that introduced me to the larger politics of the African diaspora and the history of slavery in a way that I just wasn't learning in public schools. That began my fascination Really, that's lasted my entire career with the subject matter I study, but it also began my fascination with the island of Jamaica. Uh, I wanted to know in some ways why that Jamaican oral culture was so strong uh, and so powerful in its interpretation of the history of slavery.
0: Right. And and that's a phenomenal that's a phenomenal answer, because for me, like I said, like I, I'm always interested in, you know, why scholars take up uh, particular spaces Right. For, for their work. And, you know, this is this has been a big part of your work. And speaking of also things that have been very much influential for you, you graduated from Duke University. Right. With your with your, with your doctoral uh, degree, your doctorate degree. Um, and, you know, you, you had a host of pretty awesome scholars around in that in that time frame. Right. So you got Julius Scott, Peter Wood, Herman Bennett, Jennifer Morgan, Stephanie Smallwood and many others. Can you reflect on those experiences at Duke uh, with all of these folks among, you know, the many other folks around and really how, how does that, you know, color your book, but also just on a general, you know, off, off the top kind of thing, what was a special sauce at Duke in the late (laughs) eighties and and throughout the nineties that just y'all just out here just doing all the, all the things, right? What what was going
1: on? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a, you know, I, I hesitate to answer the question because, in some ways, it sounds like you know, tell us why you and your friends are so awesome. And <laughs> I don't want I don't want to come <laughs> across as arrogant, but it, there it was a really special place uh, and time to be in graduate school at Duke University in the 1990s, and and partly because you know all those people were there, and I was just trying to keep up when I got there. Herman Bennett and Jennifer Morgan were already there doing their work. I think Herman Bennett was finishing his dissertation when I came as a prospective graduate student and he and Jennifer Morgan hosted me, uh, introduced me to people like Stephanie Smallwood, introduced me to people like Alex Bird. Um, and so, you know, already I was thinking like, okay, this is, this is what scholarship looks like. Now, it was a very special time at Duke in that there were a lot of African-American graduate students there um, because we'd been brought in in two successive cohorts of, I think, seven one year and six the next year by um, a graduate administrator named Jackie Looney. And Jacqueline Looney had had it as her mission to increase the number of African-American graduate students uh, across the board at Duke University, but we really saw the impact on the history department in those few years in the mid nineties. So I got to Duke thinking, that's just what graduate school looks like. Of course, there are gonna be 13, 14 African-American scholars in classes, uh, on topics ranging from the history of the slave trade and slavery all the way up through the Civil Rights Movement. Because that's what we really had there. And this goes to the faculty, is we had a number of, of core faculty at Duke who had been, some of them engaged in the Civil Rights Movement and now interested in Civil Rights Movement history, uh, but also interested in the history of colonialism and slavery and Atlantic history. And all of them were working together to really think through this long history of black experience in the Americas and the black freedom struggle in the Americas so people working on slave revolt such as I was with David Barry Gaspar who had written a fantastic book on a slave conspiracy in 1736 on the island of Antigua in the Caribbean to people like Raymond Gavins who was working on the civil rights movement in North Carolina were thinking together about the long tradition of of black freedom struggle in the Americas uh, in a transnational way and over the long durée. And really by by working with those people, it kept us from being narrow. It kept our questions open and broad. It kept us thinking like, well, how is how does what I do relate to what, say, Hassan Jeffries does when he's working on the Black Power Movement in Lowndes County? Um, how does what I do with, with Jamaican history in the 18th century speak to what someone like Charles McKinney does with civil right, with the civil rights movement in North Carolina? So by thinking broadly about that field, um, we were able to kind of really, I guess, test our questions, uh, cross pollinate our research methods, think through the relevance of our work in a very broad and expansive way. I think that was one of the things that was going on at Duke, aside from the fact that, yeah, we were all there and we all wanted to, you know, none of us wanted to, to, to let the side down. We all wanted to look good. So we all tried to keep up our best work.
0: Hey y'all, because I ain't gonna lie, I've been wondering, man. Like goodness gracious, alive! Everybody over there is doing something dope, and so th- th- this is this is awesome. So so it's really good to hear, uh, kind of like the um. You know, a little bit of institutional history, a little bit, of, a little bit of an oral history of of Duke in this particular time. So, 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 thank you for that. Well, um, that
1: happens. That happens at a number of places. I mean, you can look back to say yeah. Johns Hopkins in the 70s and 80s, where Atlantic history was was coming up. You can look at that period immediately post 90s when Jennifer Morgan moved to Rutgers University and Christopher Brown was there, um, and um, and Brent Hayes Edwards was there, and you had so many people kind of chopping away at this African diaspora history. And you get a lot of interesting scholarship emerging out of Rutgers in that period. So, you know, these clusters of folks doing interesting work, thinking together about questions that are relevant to each other, but also relevant to a broader, you know, field of readers move around the country. And you just have to kind of find them and hopefully get lucky, get into them and get in contact with people who are um, doing the kind of work that interests you. But it, it, they tend to move in clusters over time around the various institutions.
0: Most definitely. And as someone who's currently at Rutgers getting their PhD, I'm just I'm just letting the waters just rush over me so I can get some of some of those cool, you know, energies and such. And so um, you know, one of the things moving further towards your book, um, one of the interesting parts about your book that I just really loved was the just the geographic analysis that you uh incorporate. And so, you know, talking about the interdisciplinarity of a lot of the work that, you know, to do African and uh, uh, African-American studies, right, pretty much have to do. Um, So can you talk to us about within, you know, Tacky's Revolt and your conception of the book, can you speak to the importance of of geography and and cartography as
1: well? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I was very fortunate, Adam, um, after my first book, The Reaper's Garden, Death and Power in the World of Atlantic Slavery. Um, I was able to get a, what they call a Mellon New Directions grant to study geography and cartography. And the reason I, I applied for that grant is because I, I reasoned, look, I'm an African diaspora scholar, and the African diaspora is fundamentally a spatial phenomenon. We're talking about the dispersal of people from Africa across the world, thinking how they, how they, how they, uh, how they reshape their cultures, their worldviews, their politics, where they find themselves, Um, And so I should be thinking with the tools of a geographer about how that works. So human geography became a subject that became interesting to me. And uh, I got this little grant in order to kind of study the field of geography uh, and cartography, kind of the the methodological tools to map uh, how phenomena play out over space um, after my first book. And so when I did that, one of the first places I went was to uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, And I got involved in this little group of people, I guess we called ourselves the Counter Mapping Collective, led by a cartographer named Tim Stallman and a geography graduate student named Pavitra Vasudevan, who is now at University of Texas, Austin, um, and a few others. And I began thinking about Taki's Revolt um, and how it would play out on the map. As I did that, I decided I needed a timeline. And I needed a timeline that showed me how things played out over space and time. So I set about making a locational database, taking all of the sources that I had on the revolt and trying to plot every mention of everything that happened day by day um, and place by place on this map. And at some point I decided, you know, this map probably could be seen on its own as a standalone piece. And at that point, I engaged some, some, some cartographers who were doing cartography for the World Wide Web, kind of cutting edge stuff uh, at a group called um, Axis Maps. And with Axis Maps, we began to develop this animated thematic map of the revolt so I could have a timeline that you could would play out visually over the entire course of about 18 months, which is about how long Taki's Revolt lasted. And that really showed me some things that I had not been able to learn from just reading the, the textual sources alone. I could, be, I began to discern some kinds of strategies uh, that the rebels pursued just by watching the way they moved over the landscape and also um, the way they tried to evade the counterinsurgency. So I, I learned um, that over the course of the revolt, the first phase of the revolt really aimed at either taking over or destroying the commercial heart of the parish of St. Mary, where the revolt started, where Tacky himself was the leader um, at the first outbreak uh, of the revolt in April 1760. But in a much larger phase of the revolt in Westmoreland Parish, it looked like the rebels were trying to create an independent maroon-type colony up in the mountains, both defensible from the planters, the slaveholders with their estates on the plains, but also defensible from other Maroons who had signed treaties with the planters, requiring them to police future slave revolts, which they did. So you could see the rebels in Westmoreland occupying this detached mountain range, again, defensible from the Maroons and from the planters, to start their own new Maroon community, a quite different spatial strategy than you saw play out in the parish of St. Mary. So then you began to see how the the rebels... um, how the rebels constructed and uh, and uh, and carried through their war aims without being able to read any kinds of you know documents left by them themselves so again the geography of the revolt taught me something about the rebels that i just couldn't have learned uh, without thinking cartographically like that
0: incredible and and Right, that that also shows in how you construct maps as well with the book too. Because uh, one of the things I found that was fascinating um, was also your use of maps and and, uh, and just mapping generally. So, can you speak on that particular point too about the importance of of maps? Because as someone who doesn't, you know, who who didn't know as much right about um, uh, Tacky's revolt in general, the maps were just. An amazing addition that I, I think the the readers of the book, once they go by it, will certainly I, I believe agree with.
1: Oh, I'm glad you said that, Adam, because I worked hard on those maps and they're, and they're very important to me, and they're, they're a very important part of the book. I think my fascination and my interest with maps probably goes back to those years at Duke University, and uh, Julius Scott, who was one of the, one of the faculty members there I worked with, you know, had an African diaspora class that a lot of us took, and he always gave a map test in the middle of that class. And some of us were bad, right? Because it was a map quiz of the African diaspora and where people ended up, like, what are all these islands in the Caribbean and the lesser Antilles and the greater Antilles? And some of us thought, like, oh, this is kind of remedial, but but maybe I didn't know, right? And so, you know, as we were kind of learning that map test that all of us took and absorbing the lessons of having to know where things happen, even on these small islands, and why it might be different if you found yourself on an island that was more mountainous, than an island that was less mountainous. It might be different if you find yourself on the windward side or the leeward side of an island. Where you found yourself in the current um, might be different. It might shape your experience differently. That kind of geographical thinking and cartographical thinking really was something that shaped the way I thought about Tacky's Revolt as I, as I indicated when I made that map. So having made that map, that animated thematic map in 2013, I knew I wanted to convey um, what I'd learned using the maps in the book itself. And so at that point, I sought out a cartographer who had done some great um, you know, 2D static maps for books named Molly Roy. And I essentially put Molly Roy um, on retainer. And I said, hey, look, I've got these various battles that I want to portray on maps. How can we do this? Um, I would like you to read the text that I've got, the rough draft of the text that I've got, and come up with some ways of visualizing this in 2D for the book. And she came up with these story maps that kind of look like, you know, panels in a graphic novel, but they play out the revolt much as I had done with the animated maps online. And so I was very happy with the work that she did, uh, and I'm very proud that they reproduced them as well those well in the book so that people can essentially, you know, look at those maps and know the story of the revolt even before they read what I have to say about it, right? They can know the outline of the revolt uh, before, before they read my text. And that to me was, in, in fact, one of the instructions I gave her was, imagine if people only had these maps, would they have some sense of the story, of the sweep of the story? Uh, and she was able to do that, I think, brilliantly uh, in a way that I'm, I'm very proud of with the book.
0: Absolutely. And like I said, it definitely comes out in the book. And and for those who might not be as steeped in um Caribbean slavery literature or African diaspora literature, um, I, I definitely think that it's a welcome addition. Um and it also shows the importance of, of maps and geography of within how we write about and conceptualize our work. Um and so for me, just going, you know, going to the archives, right? You know, l- l- let's talk about that briefly. So when you're when you're coming up with, right, your idea for for, for yourself to conduct this, uh, to, to write this book, you know, where where are you going, right? What, what kind of archives are you taking up? And also, what kind of, you know, what kind of methods are you trying to bring up? Because these are, you know, these are, you know, folks who are, who, as we know from reading your book, these are slave rebels. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of, you know, what kind of archival uh, methodologies are you, are you taking up to to construct your story as well?
1: Yeah, right. When you say they're slave rebels, I mean, what you're saying is that the people who left the records about them were universally unsympathetic to their war aims. Right. Um, Absolutely. Were their enemies. And so one of the difficult things about this story is, you know, one has to learn about it mostly or almost strictly through sources left by the rebels enemies. Um, the slaveholders themselves uh, and the people who kind of would do anything, say anything to keep them in subjection because their livelihoods depended on it. So that is a challenge that all of us have who do any kind of subaltern history um, and especially the history of slavery. One of the ways of overcoming that is to read those kinds of sources against the grain. Social historians have been doing that for a long time, trying to examine things that the sources don't say explicitly but plausibly or certainly must have been the case when you begin to situate those sources back in their historical milieu. Um, and I can expand on that a little bit by saying, you know, if you read a source, you know, not just as a representation of what happened, or not just as a representation of the conventions of thought, you know, held by the people who make the sources, but kind of dialectically as an artifact of an encounter, between people who have certain aspirations, certain desires, certain habits of mind, certain conventions for expressing something, and a world that is under no obligation, right, to fit their terms, a world that confronts them with something sometimes new, sometimes inexplicable that they then have to describe. When you begin to think of those sources, not as facts, but as artifacts of that larger process, then you be able you, you can see them kind of in their moment and you can you can learn things from the sources that the, the people who made the sources didn't mean to say, right? So for example, um, for the last you know, 260 years or so, the planter historian Edward Long, who wrote a three-volume history of Jamaica, has been the definitive source of information on Tacky's Revolt. Um, he, was, he was there at the time. Um, he was one of its observers, but he also you know, hated Black people, especially Africans. He was an extreme racist, um, but his racism was in part shaped conditioned, even provoked by his encounter with these slave rebels, right? So one can read not only his account of the revolt as a description of what happened, and you know, there are lots of questions I have about his accuracy as, a, as, a, as, a, as an observer of the revolt, but also as, as a text that's in fact produced by the shock an alarm and dread uh, and fright that the revolt caused the planters in 1760 and 1761 in Jamaica. So again, Long becomes not just a source, but a character. And his description of the revolt is a product and not uh, not just a source.
0: And speaking of descriptions, one of the descriptions that you have for Tacky's revolt is as a race war. Um, as well. And so can you speak to that particular description? And also, what are the implications of viewing Tacky's revolt as a race war?
1: Yeah. So um, I say that it was kind of, you know, there was four wars at once, right? So one, it was a race war, you know, most simply by virtue of the fact that, you know, all of the rebels were black, and the slaveholders were white. Now, It's also true that there were many black people and brown people who fought the rebels. um, And so it wasn't as if it was only black and white, but it was also a race war, in fact, because the way it was described afterwards by Edward Long was almost strictly in racial terms. And even though Long knew that the slaveholders on the island could not have suppressed this revolt um, without employing black and brown people on their side uh, as adjuncts. He also used this in his, in his really racist campaign to argue about the character of black people, right? So it was not only a race war by default, but it was a race war in its representation um, by Edward Long, the slaveholding planter. But it was also an outgrowth of wars that had been happening in Africa. So you found that many of the people who led Tacky's revolt had been soldiers in West African campaigns. And those were often slaving wars that were stimulated in part by weapons that had been sold to Africa by the Europeans in order to facilitate the slave trade. It was also because so many of these people had been on different sides in their previous conflicts and then had their own kinds of conflicts in Jamaica. It was a kind of communal struggle, even a communal war among Black people in Jamaica over how they were going to... Determine their lives in Jamaica over what kinds of claims they could make on territory and what kinds of legacies they could leave. It was also, um, in some ways, most obviously, one of the largest battles of the Seven Years' War. And we know the Seven Years' War as the titanic global struggle between Britain and its imperial rivals, most notably France, but also Spain. Um, But this was one of its major battles in Britain's most profitable most militarily significant, and best politically connected colony in the Americas. And yet, it hadn't really been considered part of the Seven Years' War by historians of that conflict. There were a few, like like the historian Maria Alessandra Balatino in her 2009 dissertation that recognized Tacky's Revolt very much as part of the Seven Years' War. But Fred Anderson, for example, who wrote the big definitive book on the Seven Years' War in America, doesn't consider Tacky's Revolt at all. So I wanted to integrate all of these four kinds of war, all of these currents uh, into Tacky's Revolt as a kind of a war that showed you how all, it tied together all these various conflicts on, around the Atlantic world.
0: Exceptional. And, and it was just, first of all, y'all, once you read it, look, I was laying on my couch just reading, and I was like, my goodness. Man, look, I need to write like this one day. It's going yeah. it might happen. I hope you know what I'm saying. Um, not because not only y'all is it a well-written book, but also one of the questions that I, I just always had as I was reading it, Dr. Brown was one of the things that I'm even now in graduate school struggling with is all, even just the 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 not even what's on the page, but how you outline and how you conceive of the actual work. Right? Mm. And so, can you, can you speak to as the writer, right? We spoke about the mapping and the cartography, but as someone who is constructing such an intricate story, what, how did you even begin? What are the things, what are the challenges of the, the, the largesse of this kind of project, right? Because you have a lot of moving parts. Yeah. And so, so, can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, and I I kept saying that to myself over and over again. There were a lot of moving parts. How do I fit them all together? Um, If you're trying to describe, you know, Tacky's Revolt itself as an eddy within these kind of larger currents of warfare around the Atlantic world, how do you make sense of it all? How do you not lose track of what's happening? But that, again, geographic metaphor helped, right, to kind of think about broad currents that then eddied in this conflict in Jamaica gave me a visualization tool. Um, because kind of one sees these currents coming from multiple directions and then swirling into an eddy. and that's kind of how I decided I was going to write the book to kind of bring all these things together into Taki's revolt. So the first chapter of the book kind of begins in Africa with those slaving wars that I talked about. And then I talked about I talk about the imperial warfare in the in the second in the second chapter, and then I talk about how those slaving wars in Africa, Result in certain kinds of communal conflicts among Black people um, as they move from Africa to Jamaica, and then in the kind of you know the, the the chapters four and five, what begins the kind of long second act of the book. I I lay out the slave revolt in itself in a kind of point by point, uh, location by location format. So it's really you know I guess if it was a, if it was a movie, you would call it the the action set piece for two chapters before I begin to talk about the reverberations of the revolt. In the final chapter, chapter six, uh, and talk about how kind of people responded to Takis' revolt. So, yeah, I mean, I had to think about how it was all going to fit together, and that three act structure really helped me.
0: And and so you yeah I'm see this is why I'm so glad that this is all coming together very well. So a question that I had that that I that I wrote down. Um, you know, doing some research and all that, right? Like you had just mentioned, this book very much reads like script, right? Like a like a play. Like, and so I, I'd found out that, you know, you got um you you minored um at uh UC San Diego in theater performance. Mm-hmm. Um and, and you know, I'm always interested in how these things that other people might see as ancillary. Very much pr- probably isn't right. So, can you speak to maybe how that particular theater performance background maybe helps you to better understand how to conceptualize the broad uh, and, and very much impactful stories that you lay out not only here but in your other works that you do, right? As as a, as an author and as, also as a digital humanist.
1: Well, I feel, I feel a bit exposed now, Adam. You caught me out. Um, basically, yes, I am, I am a failed actor. <laughs> this is uh, My career as a historian is plan B. Turn, turned out I wasn't tall enough or good looking enough to make it in Hollywood. So here I am. Oh, Doc. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I went to UC San Diego to study theater and worked with some fantastic uh, people, including Luther James, um, who was a black director who was teaching at UC San Diego. Um, I, it is, it is one of my first loves theater, um, but also, uh, cinema and television. And so I do tend to think about dramatization, uh, quite carefully and how I dramatize these historical stories. This story probably, you know, because I had so many moving parts, probably it's most like a TV serial. And if we are still in or just exiting the golden age of television, you know, one can think about how one constructs a long term story with a lot of different characters and a lot of moving parts that moves a lot of different places in terms of, you know, of those kind of televis- episodic television shows um, in which you follow characters for a while, follow some other characters and then pick up those initial characters again at a later point in the story. And that's kind of what I was trying to do here. Um, why do we dramatize? I mean, I think dramatization helps us to remember is one thing. I think that, you know, the things that we attach emotions to are things that that resonate with us more deeply, are things that stick in our memories. Um, and so one of the reasons I try to write in a way that's going to be evocative is because I want, I want people to hold these stories in their head. And I also want them to hold my interpretations. Um, As I said, there are lots of reasons why this kind of story has not made it to the mainstream. Why, you know, not that many people in the United States know about Tacky's Revolt, um, but they all know about the American Revolution, right? They know more about that than they do about the Haitian Revolution. And I would like to find some way of making this a more conventional story, a better understood story. Uh, The fact that, you know, someone like Kanye West doesn't know the history of slave revolts. Right. And yet when he says that, um, you know, he's more influential than kind of all the historians who have written about slave revolts, you know, generation after generation means we've got work to do in terms of, you know, making our work resonate with the public. And so I think that more of us probably ought to spend some time thinking about how we do that.
0: Right. And so uh, for me, you know, I just really think a lot. Right? And, and first of all, like, thank you for that answer, because, you know, a couple of years ago, right, when when Kanye said that, I was thinking about that, too. Um, and, and and like I said, like I'm how people visualize projects to me is just so fascinating. So so it's just really cool to hear uh, you speak about this particular, um, you know, y- your background. Right. Because I think that that very much is interesting to see how it informs uh your 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 present work and so going back to this question of, of environment and landscape one of the ones that that really one of the things that really struck me was you know the gold coast is really the main west african region that you speak about in in the book um you know because of where uh the the uh, uh descend from but the way that your book reads is also very vivid in its description of physical landscapes. Mm. And so, right. Obviously the book is about Jamaica, but it's a very much a a gold coast slash, you know, Ghana story. So in your travels and in your research, did you travel to the gold coast um, or what was then the gold coast um, to, to kind of pick that kind of same vividness that you obviously show uh, with Jamaica, right? Because I think that that's something that, uh, to me, just think about trying to bring up these social stories. To talk about the social, you got to talk about environments too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. You know, I, I did have an opportunity to travel to Ghana in both 2007 and 2008. And, you know, one of the things that really stuck with me was uh, I was there in 2007 at the Omahundro Women uh, Women Mary Quarterly Conference um, there to commemorate the, uh, the, abolition, the abolition of the British slave trade. Um, and we, we had our conference there uh, near Cape Coast Castle. And I remember feeling about Cape Coast Castle, that it was kind of a tourist trap, you know, it was a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And so it's very busy and the, the castle is in good repair and kind of it's been painted over and there are vendors there and things like that. And so, you know, it was something to see. The structure was interesting. But I had the opportunity to go with the historian John Wood Sweet. Early, early one morning, we got up before dawn and went down the coast to Anamabo. And, you know, we know as historians that Anamabo was the busiest uh, slave fort on the Gold Coast in the 18th century. Um, More people went through there than than from any other fort. Uh, But Anamabo itself has not been designated a World Heritage Site. So it's kind of run down. And it's been many things since. And in some ways, it kind of has the feel of a decrepit um, thing from the past. And by getting there so early in the morning, we were able to be there without many other people. Um, when the fog, and if you know Ghana, you know the coast. There's a there's a fog that that hangs on the on the coast. When that fog had not yet lifted, and so I remember walking around there, and really kind of having an emotional experience. Um, of imagining the kind of history that I, that I write about. And I guess going back to, you know, you you asked my my initial inspiration for thinking about the history of slavery, you know, this one song by Burning Spear came to me. Um, And I remember just kind of starting to sing kind of out on the coast and singing and thinking. And it wasn't really like I had an analysis of what was going on. I just had, uh, I had a feeling. Um, And that feeling was something that, and I wrote into the book as well, and I hope it conveys um, that sense that we are in conversation with the past, that the past is not over, um, that it lives with us. And being in the place kind of really helped me helped me feel that emotionally, helped me, helped me get that. And hopefully that affect is there in the writing. Um, I will say also that in the analysis, um, it was important to me to think about the landscape as part of the story. Um, Because as I said, I was learning a lot about what I think are the rebels intentions by looking at these maps and seeing how things played out on the map and being very careful in my attention to space. Part of which I learned from some of the spatial historians who were working at Stanford at the time, uh, Richard White and Zephyr Frank um, among them. But, But thinking about the landscape itself as a character in the story, as some as 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 something that shaped the action um, was something that was very much on my mind, and so having a sense of these places helped me to do that.
0: And you sp- you spoke about feeling right, and you, you spoke mm. about really almost in a way a spiritual element mm. um, of this too. So you know, th- this is something that I always think about as far as who's writing particular stories and 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 also mm. why. In a way, do you feel called to do the work that you do? Um, and, and also, to, to add to that, what motivates you can, to continue to do the work that you do?
1: Mm. Well, you said spiritual. I mean, the song that I was singing at Anamabo was, was John O'Dead by Burning Spear. You know the one? They tried to fool the mm-hmm. black population by telling us that Jah was dead. Well, they tried to fool the black population by telling us that Jah was dead. I and I knows that John O'Day. Why that song came to me, I don't know. That's the one that did. That's the one that came out. That's the one that I felt. Um, I haven't analyzed it too much. Uh, it's there in the story that I tell, and I think it's a different story because I'm telling it because I've had the experiences that I've had. Now, is that something that you know I can teach or control for? I don't know. The way I tell my students to handle that is by being honest with themselves about why they're writing a story. I don't tend to think that you know some stories can only be written by some people. I think that different people write different stories in their particular way, and that we should just be open and honest about the way you're writing a story and honest with yourself about why you're writing the story. Um, write it for yourself as well as for the world, not just to be an expert, right? Not just to have ownership of the story, but to, again, commune with the past in a way um, that, feels, that feels right, that feels honest to your experience, right? So I don't think that I could have written this story any other way. Um, I was someone who kind of learned to ap- appreciate the history of Black politics and the history of slavery through Jamaica and Jamaican musicians. And I think that comes out in the way I write it. Somebody else will write the story a different way. And that's fine. That's okay. I don't see that as an appropriation um, any more than I hope. Jamaicans don't see it as an appro- appropriation for me, being from Southern California, to write such an important part of Jamaican history. Um, but I do want to be, be as honest as possible about kind of how I come to this material uh, and what I think it does.
0: Definitely, definitely, and and you know, thank you for that because it it, it was definitely uh some that I was um really thinking about as as I was reading and also just going through like the acknowledgements and 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 you know looking through this background stuff too, um and, and you spoke about your your classroom you spoke about your students um at Harvard and at, at the various spaces that you uh, deliver talks, um how does how does the construction and all of its multi-layered elements, how does that come into your classroom? And and also looking at how, you're, how you think about pedagogy and, and all these other questions about really, how does one's book inform how they teach? Right, that's something okay. that's always fascinating to me.
1: Okay, so I start with, especially my graduate students, by saying, you know, I think most good projects come from the intersection of three three engagements. Um, one, your inter- engagement with the primary sources, you know, those sources produced contemporaneously with the phenomena you're trying to describe in the past. Two, uh, your engagement with a community of interpretation about the meaning of the past. And three, as I was just indicating in my last answer, your situation, right? Kind of your particular outlook on the world and what you're trying to do with that history. We often underplay that, that last thing. Um, but I think it's important. So if you're, you know, as as honest as you can be about your engagement with the sources themselves and trying to, you know, represent them accurately, but also being as true as you can to that community of interpretation, um, answering questions honestly, um, subjecting yourself to criticism, but also thinking about why it is you want to want to do the work that you're doing, you know, you can't help but produce something interesting, in my view. Um, because you know, you're unique and you have a unique outlook on the world. And if you express that, um, you're going to be saying something that, that nobody else has said, and you're probably going to be saying it in an interesting way. Um, so I try to write my books so that you can teach that so that they are both personal, but also what might've been called at one point objective, right? Um, they are exhaustive examinations of the evidence. They are deeply engaged in scholarly traditions. They are um, open to criticism and critical of what has come before. And again, they are deeply personal. Um, So I try to model that way of researching and writing for my students, you know, A, in the work, but also, you know, in in the classroom, as I ask them to think about the work that they're reading.
0: Mm -hmm. Very good, and so, you know, we're reaching towards uh, the, the final couple questions here. Uh, so, so we're going to move, uh, uh, pivot a little bit to more of, you know, legacy questions, both for the work and for and for you. Um, you know, you had broached us a little bit, but how is Tacky's Revolt remembered today uh, in, in, you know, Jamaican history, uh, but also within the wider stream of uh, slave revolts, right? How is Tacky's Revolt remembered?
1: So, you know, I was honored um, about a week or two weeks ago to be on a radio show with the activist uh, Derek Black X Robinson, who has for many years been advocating for Tacky to be named a national hero within Jamaica. And one of the things he's been doing is kind of he's been walking you know, once a year with a chain around his neck from Fort Haldane, where in St. Mary Parish where the revolt started all the way down to Emancipation Day Park, about 37 miles to Kingston to advocate for the remembrance of, of Tacky and Tacky's revolt, which I think is not widely taught in the Jamaican school system even today. Um, now, it was, it was fantastic to be on the radio with him because you know, he was reminding me that you know St. Mary people have been keeping this story alive, that the folklore that happens in these local parts of Jamaica is, is active and vibrant, that the story is meaningful for local people and that this book in some ways helps them to attach what they know through folklore to you know, a conventional scholarly canon um, and helps to argue for the importance of these events to people in government who, you know, who might weigh in on such a thing as, as a national holiday or, or making Tacky a national hero. So that was gratifying to be of service to people for whom the history already means something and and they're already organizing around it. But I also wanna inform people who don't know anything about this history. Uh, this was the largest slave revolt in the 18th century British empire. And the closest to the slave revolt that could have taken the entire colony before the Haitian revolution of 1791 to 1804. So it was a major, major event, as I said, it happened in in what I think was Britain's most important American colony at the time, and had major effects. I at least want to highlight and illustrate those to people who have a maybe never heard of this revolt or merely think of it as a slave revolt, right um not a major war waged by soldiers both from Africa and Jamaica, but also soldiers, sailors, marines, and officials from Europe who had to suppress this at all costs because the empire was at stake. This was a major, major event in imperial, and I would say even world history, and we don't know much about it. So I'm, 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 trying, to, I'm trying to advocate for that understanding as well
0: good good because you know it's it's always great to hear how scholars are engaging in in these particular discussions because right as you spoke about in in your prior answer there are stakes to 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 take up right as far as the importance of the work and how it can translate to a, a broader audience and especially a story like this about Jamaica how folks across you know the the diaspora and, and folks in Jamaica how how do they think about it too um, so, so it's very much uh, great to hear uh, your particular engagements, um, but but also for you as the scholar writing the book, right? As you know, you we, we talked a bit about you know the foundations of of your uh, foray with the work. In a way, right? Talk to us maybe how writing this book, right? What were some of the challenges, and also how how this how writing the book may have changed you, if if, if at all.
1: Hmm. Mm. Well, I mean, it's certainly changed the way I write, that's for sure, to start with, which is my first book was, was much more broadly thematic. And this book is far more narrative um, and far more detailed. And when I set about to write a story that was going to kind of take you blow by blow through a certain event, I didn't know <laughs> really how much research you might have to do just to write a sentence or half a sentence. You might be, you know, in three different archival repositories looking at six different sources just to string together a sentence. Because when I was trying to follow some of these these characters um, through their trajectories across the Atlantic world, you know, I might be in the records of the castle trading forts, and then I would be on ships manifests in the Royal Navy. And then I would be in plantation records, uh, and then I would be in newspapers, and then I would be in correspondences or official records. And all of these things, you know, just to be able to say, this guy went from here to here to here on a certain date or on a certain range of dates, was was a tremendous amount of work to be able to do that. So I think in some ways, I'm a I'm a more careful archival historian than I was when I wrote the first book. Um and also have a lot more respect for for narrative detail uh, and how difficult it is to get it right, um, even even if it's not appreciated. I know that this book will be in some ways so detailed that it will be dense for many people. Um, it's fine because it was important to me to kind of tell the story in as rich a way as possible uh, and to lay out you know what happened even before I came to the interpretation. But that's not always the way historians work. Um sometimes we lead with interpretation, we stick with interpretation, and you don't get to the ground as 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 often. And I really wanted this story to work from the ground up, from the landscape up to see how things played out, as I said, moment by moment, uh, place by place so that's that's one thing um that's changed me. Um, I do think also that. I'm much more attuned to um, a broader audience of readers than I might've been for the first book. So while I'm very keen to hear from historians uh, about how they think I've engaged uh, interpretive arguments about the meaning of the age of revolution uh, or the British empire or the history of slavery, I'm, I'm also gratified, as I said, to be in contact with activists for whom this story already means something and means something quite different than it means to historians. Um, I think I can take that a lot more seriously now that you know I've got tenure and I don't just have to appeal to my colleagues, um, but I can really think about audiences in a different way. And that doesn't mean that I no longer care about academic arguments. I do and I, and I care very much and I think that they're important. But I also think that one can bridge that gap. There are ways to make your arguments and tell your stories Um, So that people who need to know where you stand in a particular argument can see where you stand. But that people who want to hear the story in a resonant way um, can hear the story, can read the story, can understand mostly the narrative aspects of of your work um, and not so much the argumentative aspects. So I like to think about analytical narrative as my form of writing. And this book has made me a much better analytical narrative narrator than I think I was in the first book.
0: Mm, definitely, and, and and that's good to know because one of the things I wonder is how does a historian at the top of their game like you think about getting better? <laughs>
1: Again, that's one of those questions I can't really answer.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, in a way, you kind of just did, right? You 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 spoke about how in the difference between, uh, and this might also just for those listening be a question of from one book to the other, right? Because both both projects require different things, right? And 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 so, um, you know, I had that on my list, but hey, you know, looky there, right? You answered it before I even got there. I appreciate you for that one, (laughs) Dr. Brown. Um, And so um, one of my last questions I have for you um, really is just, uh, did anything as you're writing just surprise you, right? Mm -hmm. Did anything along this way surprise you at all, Um, either in the writing or or yourself or just in facts that you just found out? Did anything surprise you?
1: You know, one of the biggest surprises was um, a surprise at the very beginning of the project. Um, And that was the surprise that I begin the book with, which was this moment where uh, a man who was enslaved in Jamaica and became one of the leaders of this largest slave revolt in the 18th century British Empire, uh, it was learned that he had been accustomed to treating with the former chief agent of Cape Coast Castle on the Gold Coast. And at some point after that former chief agent of of Cape Coast Castle retired and set himself up in Jamaica on a Jamaican plantation, this African man was himself captured, enslaved, sold to the Europeans, ended up in Jamaica where he again encountered the former chief agent of Cape Coast Castle. And this slave trader actually laid out a tablecloth for Sunday visits for the enslaved African man, and treated him as a man of honor, even though he was now enslaved, and insinuated that you know when this man's master came back to the island, and he was away because he was a Royal Navy ship captain, that he would have this enslaved African redeemed and sent home. Now, before the Royal Navy ship captain returns to the island, that former governor of Cape Coast Castle dies, And somewhere between his death in 1756 and 1760, this African man who had been named Opongo, who is now named Wager, plans, organizes, and then executes this largest revolt in the 18th century British Empire. I was so fascinated by that story um, that I began the research by trying to trace it out. And so I went back to the records of the castle forts to find the governor's records and who all he met. I went through all the ship records of that Royal Navy sea captain to find this enslaved man aboard a Royal Navy warship. I went through all the plantation papers in that Westmoreland parish uh, where that part of the revolt happened to find out everything that happened there. And so it was that initial surprise that here here was a man, a character who had served so many roles, right? He had been an African official. He had been a sailor aboard a Royal Navy warship. He had then been a driver on a sugar plantation that was owned by that Royal Navy ship captain before he became a slave rebel. This was already so different than the customary story of masters and slaves that we normally tell that I became fascinated enough to work on this book for (laughs) the next 15 years.
0: Well, there it is. Well, there it is. No, that that's, that's, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. And, you know, it, it's, it's one of those where I just, you know, it's always cool to hear about how scholars, you know, stay with the work like this, because mm-hmm. obviously it, it, at least from what it sounds like as well, it, it, it lives with you, right? This, oh, yeah. the, and and how does that, you know, because, and, and I ask this also as someone who's, you know, you know, starting out in, in in this early career phase, how does one let a story like this live with you, right? Mm-hmm. Like, because that that's something that I always think about. It also goes back to you know why people c- continue with the story, especially something like this where you said it took you, uh, would you say, fifteen years, or or um, or yeah. it stayed with you that long? From yeah, so, so speak to that as well, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the reasons you, you stick with the story is, for me, it's because I'm stubborn. <laughs> Once I've decided I'm going to do something, I got to do it, um, no matter how long it takes. Um, I always joke now that, that, that I want to escape slavery, um, that, it's, that it's time for me to write about something different, because the, it, it does stick with you. If, if I was called to this work in part because I felt like this was an important aspect of Black experience in African-American history that I wasn't taught, in my high school education, um, and I wanted to kind of bring my folkloric understanding to the very center of university education, um, I do think that there are other things that, that, that I want to do. It's, it's you know, Slavery is a kind of hard thing to continue working on. As I was saying earlier, um, you know, you're basically writing the history of the enslaved through the records left by their enemies which means you spend a lot of time with inveterate racists like Edward Long, you know, people who, who write that, you know, Africans mate with orangutans, right? Who lie about Black people. Um, and, you know, of course, that, that canard is something that ends up in, in Thomas Jefferson's Notes on the State of Virginia. Um, so, you know, you're really contending with people who, who began, who originated the kinds of lies about black people that we're still very much dealing with. Um, To wrestle with them at their source, I think is important work, but it's also difficult emotional work. I mean, who wants to spend all their time with someone like Edward Long? So um, I feel like this is the kind of subject where um, if you really take it seriously, if you really really make it personal for you, it's got a half-life. you know, I don't. Know, I don't know if I want to be writing about slavery forever. And don't hold me to that, because I might find another project about slavery and get stubborn and have to finish it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, but I do often, I do often dream of escape. Mm.
0: Very well, and, and and thank you for that, because you know, based upon you know your your prior comment, it, it really brought to my mind the question of. Uh, of, of what stays with people right mm. um especially in this particular moment of the global uh pandemic um it, it was interesting reading your book in a way helped me get away mm. um as weird as it is to say that right as weird as it is to conjure those words in my mouth to put out on the on the microphone
1: yeah
0: as i was reading your story what it or the the story of um attack revolt it helped me to better situate myself in the kind of writing that I want to do okay. and that, what I aspire to. Um, and in a way, although we know what the ending is, especially in your final words, literally on, you know, on the page of the book, they are, in a way, words of hope that will mm. continue. Um and, and so, you know, yes, you know, slavery studies—it it does take a lot out of you. But I want you to know that you put in through your writing—you put in a lot for for me, and I'm sure for a lot of the other people uh, who will get the chance to read your book, because hey, believe me—they're gonna buy the book. Believe me, they're they gonna buy the book.
1: <laughs> well, from your from your mouth to their ears.
0: Hey, there it is. There well, it is. I really, so, I, really,
1: I really appreciate you for that, Adam. I, I, I thank you for saying that.
0: Yeah, definitely. No, no, no problem. And, and, um, it's truly from the heart and, and it's, uh, uh, I, I remember when you, uh, replied to my email, uh, requesting, uh, uh, you to come on, I was like, oh snap, Dr. Brown hit me back, man. Look, you can't tell me nothing, <laughs> man. You, look, I'm gonna tell my mama, Hey, you know what I'm saying? Um, uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, no, like I told you, like, you know, reading your book, um, You know, I definitely wanted to let you know, because I think that's the other thing, right? You need to let people know how their work affects you, Mm. especially because in this world where people are literally being knocked down um, on the daily, you need to let people know how impactful uh, things that obviously took maybe a lot out of them, how much it put back
1: into you, Mm. for sure. Hey, I I appreciate you saying that so much, and especially now, because- you know, we're all getting used to kind of this new term, social distancing, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not as if, you know, everybody knows how to connect already anyway. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it it really makes me think that, you know, we are are going to be thinking much more about connection and how one makes connection in the future. And I, I think that maybe my work will take a turn toward thinking more explicitly about connection and how connections are made, partly as a result of this experience that we're going through now.
0: Mm, very much so. And, and, you know, just know that the airwaves of new books in African-American studies, whenever those ideas start to come out and, you know, you want to place it just as a soundboard, hey, these airwaves are for you too, Dr. Brown.
1: Hey, most definitely. Most definitely. Maybe you'll have, you have me on with Kanye. Hey look, hey, if we can make that happen, you know what, <laughs> what I'm saying? Get Skip Gates
0: over there at the Hutchins, you know what, yeah. what I'm saying? He got he got connects, we you make know. We party out of it. Hey, let's do it. Let's do it. And so, uh glad we could end on a uh on a more cheerful note in, in a particular way. Uh but also as as we as I said before y'all, please go get this book because this book and that book is Tacky's Revolt in Atlantic Slave War uh, published by Harvard University Press with the amazing authorship of Dr. Vincent Brown, the Charles Warren Professor of American History and Professor of African and African-American Studies at Harvard University. Please, please, please go support uh, our author and please support Harvard University Press. We know that there are different ways of getting books, but if you can, please support the university presses as well, uh, especially amongst this particular moment. Um, And so once again, folks, my name is Adam McNeil, a second year PhD student at Rutgers University, New Brunswick on from New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Until next time, y'all, please be well, over and out.